0: Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Yes, thank you. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. We obviously have one person besides me that knows that phrase. Who else knows that phrase? Anyone? That comes from a famous movie and television show called Friday Night Lights. Which is based on Texas high school football. And the coach of the team teaches his team this mantra clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. And what he's trying to teach his team is that if they each have their job in mind, their goal, their role on the team, and if they have a heart that is full, a heart that is completely put to the task of accomplishing their role, a heart that does it in joy and dedication, they're not going to lose. One, because they accomplish their task and they enjoy it. Two, because they now have a philosophy on life. Because you might say, well, you're not going to win every game because sometimes the team is just better than you, but Coach Taylor, that was the coach's name, wanted his team to know that if you live your life with clear eyes and a full heart, clear eyes knowing what you want to do, a full heart, living it in full service to what you want to do, that you're not going to lose in life. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, teaches the Romans that very thing. Except Paul is talking about worship. Paul teaches the Romans that you worship with clear eyes and a full heart, and when you do so, you cannot lose. Because worship is more than Sundays. Worship is a heart that is all in, that stems from God's mercy. And then when your heart is all in, you live a full life of unique service. And so Paul, when he wrote this letter, he wrote this letter to the Romans, the Christians who were in the city of Rome, before he went there and started a church. And this is kind of unusual for Paul. Normally, Paul went to the church, started the congregation, or went to the city, started the congregation, and then after he left, he wrote a letter either teaching them, them teaching that congregation more, or correcting something that they had wrong, or just giving them encouragement to continue on in the faith. But this letter, this letter to the Romans, he wrote as to lay a foundation for this congregation. And that's why the letter to the Romans is one of the most beautiful, one of the most important books that we have in the Bible. Because in it, Paul lays out clearly, step by step, how corrupt man was, how dead man was, how sinful and separated from God man was, mankind. And then he goes on and talks about how wonderful God is. How amazing, how unbelievable God is towards us. Because God demonstrated his own love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's this message of the book that pervades through the entire thing. Up until about chapter 12. And then he has a different focus. And in chapter 12, which is what we are now, he changes from why we're saved and how much God loves us and how much we need salvation from God to now, because we're believers, how do we live? How do we worship God? So we read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. You can follow along on page 8 of the worship folder. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, In accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of our Lord. When Paul wrote this section of Romans, he wanted the Christians in Rome to know that worship is something more than just saying, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I come to church on Sundays. Paul wanted those Christians to know that worship is more. It's something that you do, and he wants to know how far you go when you worship. So he says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. The first thing, one of the first things that Paul says is the most important thing when it comes to worship. Paul says, in view of God's mercy. A lot of times, the Romans and you and I think that worship is something we do for God. But worship is not something we do for God. Worship is something different. Worship is a response to God's mercies. Because if you think about it like this, we were, Paul says in other letters that we were dead in our transgressions. And earlier in Romans he talks about how totally depraved and corrupt and dead mankind is. How you and I, how dead we are. And he says our heart is like a heart of stone, hardened by sin, so that the only thing it can do is sink into the depths of hell. And you can kind of see that if you think about a dead body. What can a dead body do? It can't do anything. It can't eat, it can't breathe, it can't roll over, it can't even dress itself. And that's what we were like when we were sinking in our sinfulness with our heart of stone, hardened by sin. And we couldn't do anything. But then, the amazing thing happened. God reached down and he grabbed our heart. And as in his grasp, he changed our heart from a heart of stone hardened by sin to a heart full of faith, a heart of flesh that is living for God. And it's because of that, God, that mercy that God showed us, it's because of that vice grip of Christ that he has in our, our heart in his hand, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Not sin not death, not the power of the devil, the power of this world, not sickness, nor anything else in all creation can even think about moving a finger of Christ that holds you in his grip. And it's that mercy that our hearts respond to. It's that mercy that fills our hearts to be all in, that we are 100% for Jesus. 100% means not even a single hair on your head is against God, and so when we're a one hundred percent for Jesus, when we see that mercy, His mercy in our life, we can do what Paul says in verse two. He says, "Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is—His good, pleasing, and perfect will." When you're one hundred percent for Jesus, when your heart is all in. You can't even think about the patterns of this world. You don't want to even think about conforming to this world. And so if you're not thinking about that, what are you focusing on? You're focusing on God's Word, the renewal of your mind. And that renewal of your mind being transformed by that renewal of your mind happens when you gather around God's Word and you fill yourself up with God's Word because in God's Word we find His mercies and His mercies change our heart. And when they fill us up over and over again, overflowing with his mercy so that we can't do anything but have a heart that is all in for Jesus. If you want an example of a heart that's all in for Jesus, you don't have to go very far. You can look at Peter. One of Jesus' disciples, Peter, he was very bold. He always was the first one to say, I'm there for you, Jesus. Sometimes it got him into trouble. And this example that I'm thinking of is when Jesus was coming out to the boat and he was walking on water. The disciples were not with Jesus. They were in their own boat on the Sea of Galilee. And it was kind of windy, kind of stormy. And they see Jesus walking out towards them. And they think it's a ghost, but Jesus calls out to them, Do not be afraid. It's me. It's Jesus. You know me. I'm your Lord and Savior. And so Peter gets really excited. His heart is all for Jesus. And see, so he's focusing right on Jesus and he wants to go out to him and Jesus calls Peter out. So what does Peter do? He gets out of that boat and he takes a step onto water and he's walking on water. And his eyes are solely on Jesus and he's so focused that Je- and Jesus is giving him the ability to walk on water. That's what happens when you and I are fully focused on Christ. We don't see the things of this world, but we're only on him and he enables us to do things. But then there's something else about that story with Peter. Peter soon lost that focus on Jesus. He saw those wind, the, saw the waves coming, and he felt the wind, and he looked down, and he realized, I should not be walking on water. This is impossible. And so J- Peter's heart that was all in for Jesus, that was filled with Christ's mercies and love, was punctured by his doubts and his worries and his frustrations. And soon that heart that was full of God's mercies leaked out and he was empty. And as he leaked out his heart of mercies of the Lord, he sank into the water. And sometimes maybe you think that Peter is you. You're bold, you're ready for the Lord, you want to serve him in everything you do. You jump out at the front and your heart is seemingly all in it. But you're having these doubts, and you're having these worries, and you're having these frustrations. And those, too, crack your heart. So that slowly, over time, you lose that heart that's all in for Jesus. And that's a dangerous place to be in. And if that's you, if you're thinking that's you here today, I have the solution. You should go to the cross of Jesus. If you want to fix your broken heart, go to the foot of the cross, because it's Jesus that will patch your heart. It's Jesus that will make your heart whole again and fill it up and cause you to be overflowing with his mercies. Because if you remember the story of Peter walking on water, Peter just didn't sink and drown. But Jesus came to him and picked him up out of the water. And in the same way, Jesus will come to you and pick you up out of the water and cause your heart to be again all in. And when your heart is all in, you can live your full life of unique service. And that's what Paul then moves on. After he talks about why we worship, he now moves on to what being a living sacrifice looks like. And so first, I'm going to quick interject. A living sacrifice, we talked about it in Leviticus. It was To the Romans, this would have sounded weird, to be a living sacrifice, because that meant that they would have probably been killed. Because the sacrifice, the burnt offering, was an animal that they killed and burnt on the burnt, altar of burnt offerings, and it went all the way up to the Lord. So to the Christians in Rome, that probably was a stark thinking or statement, to be a living sacrifice. But when you're a living sacrifice, it's because your heart is alive and full of faith, and then you're putting that faith into action. And so Paul talks about how being a living sacrifice looks like in verses three. In verse 3, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Paul warns the Romans to not think too highly of themselves. Because when you're in faith, you think that you have everything, which you do. And he's now talking about spiritual gifts, and he doesn't want the Romans to think that each one of them had every spiritual gift under the sun. He also didn't want the Romans to think that each one of their spiritual gifts was the best spiritual gift, better than any other person's spiritual gifts. Nor did he want the Romans to think that they could choose their own spiritual gifts. And so he wants them to think about what gifts God has given them with sober judgment. Sober judgment means clear, careful, deep thinking about what gifts God has given you. Because when Paul says, in the measure of faith, in the accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, that's where he's saying God has given you only certain gifts. And then Paul goes on to say this in a clearer sense. He gives us a meaning of that, too, in verses 4 and 5. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So, Paul says, the church of Christ, we are like a body. If you think about a body, we body has different members it has a heart lungs a stomach fingers toenails eyelashes and all these different things have different purposes and so my heart pumps my blood my lungs breathe the air my stomach digests the food my fingers pick up the food so i can eat it my toes help me balance and yet And yes, even my eyelashes, though they seem small and insignificant, protect my eyes so that I don't go blind. And that's just what a body of Christ, the church, is like. We all have different members. We all have different abilities and gifts. But that's not unfair. That's actually for the best because when we all use our gifts to the fullest, when we live that full life of unique service, We all live and work and worship for the glory of God and not for each other, just like the body works all for the purpose of living in life. And then Paul goes on in verses verses 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul lists a number of different gifts because he wants you to know that there's a many different ways for us to serve God. I'm going to go back to a football reference here. If you think I want to think about the different gifts that we have and the different purposes that we have In the church, it's like a football team. But what would it be like if these members and these football players wanted to be something that they weren't gifted with? For example, you're a coach of a high school football team, and it's the first day of practice. You know what you want in each of your players, and so you see your team, and what do you have? You have eight quarterbacks, 15 wide receivers, 20 running backs, 10 tight ends, and one, yes, one, Offensive lineman, and so you think to yourself, if I put this team out on the field, what is going to happen? It's going to be utter chaos, absolute pandemonium, and we're—I guarantee you—we're going to get beat because we don't have that team that will work together, each with their individual purposes. And you're thinking, as the coach, there's this one kid that I really want to play quarterback because I know he's got the gifts. He could probably do JV this year, and for sure next year as a sophomore, he might be varsity. Because this kid can throw the ball all over the field. You know he'll throw touchdown after touchdown. He throws the ball on a frozen rope, and his arm is a cannon. But this one quarterback that you know is the best quarterback on your team wants to be wide receiver. But he can't catch, and he isn't fast. And to tell you the truth, this kind of was like my freshman high school football team. I wasn't the quarterback, don't worry. But rather, I was one of those tight ends. We had one offensive lineman the very first day, and I was one of those tight ends. And I wanted to be a tight end so I could catch the touchdowns, so I could get the glory, so I could get the girls, when really my gifts lit were in the offensive line. And I chose to be an offensive lineman later, and it worked out for me and I started as a sophomore in varsity. But the point of that story isn't that I'm so good at being an offensive lineman. I mean, look at me. It was a small high school. But the point of the story was to show the opposite of where my motivation was and why I chose what I wanted to be. Because I wanted to be that tight end for my own personal gain. Not for the gain of the team. I wanted to be the one... In the spotlight, I wanted to be selfish and score all the points and to be the guy that could do it all. And that was arrogant of me. I was self-serving and I was selfish. And that's what it's like when you and I see our gifts that God has given us but say, no, I don't want those. I want someone else's. Because when we do that, we're coveting someone else's gifts. We want their gifts. We're saying, God, what you, haven't given, what you have given me isn't good enough. And that there is a sinful thought. And that there shows that your heart isn't all in because you don't want a full life of unique service. You want someone else's service. And so again, go to the foot of the cross because it's God who will change your heart when you gather around the word to fill you up, to make you understand that your gifts are the, are the gifts that you need to use. For example, we're just going to go, we have plenty of musicians here. And that's awesome. I'm not saying we don't have too many. But we are blessed with musicians. And their gift is music. So let's encourage them continually to blow the roof off of this church with the music. And some of you, I know, are really good at encouraging others. You can just relate very well to people. You always know what the right thing to say. And what Paul is saying when he's talking about these gifts and to do them is that You need to make full use of them. You need to unload these gifts. So if you're that encourager, know what you do? You encourage us so much so that we get sick of your encouragement. And then when we're sick of your encouragement, you know what you're going to do? You're going to encourage us some more and we're going to like it because that's just what's going to happen. And maybe some of you have the gift of giving, whether it's time and effort and service or money, or other things. You want to know what God says? Give until you can give no more. And when you think you can't give anymore, I'm going to give you more to give because I gave you the gift of giving. And there's plenty other examples, and these are just some that Paul says that these gifts are. And when you have that careful judgment of that that heart that's all in for Jesus, you'll understand what your gift is, and you're just going to make full use of it and unload it on everyone else. And when you do that, you're living that full life of complete and unique service. Because God designed life so that if we live for ourselves, and we live for the now and how we can get better at ourselves, It leaves you feeling at night, empty, not satisfied, that life is lacking something. So God designed life that a full, unique service with a heart dedicated to God, that leaves you with a life that feels complete, a life that is satisfying, a life that serves God. And it's kind of interesting how, if you go back to the beginning of the sermon, those three phrases of that football TV show about football and that movie, Clear Eyes, Full Heart, Can't Lose, describes very well the life of someone who worships, who is a living sacrifice. Because when you have that clear eyes, you know your role in the church, you know your gifts, and you know how you get to use them. And you have that heart that is full because God's mercies fill it day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. You have a life where you know you won't lose because God has given you the ultimate goal of heaven. And by worshiping God, you know that your faith will be strengthened because you're by that word of God. And so, worship is more than Sundays. So let's go out. Let's use our gifts. Let's have fun. Let's be all that God intended us to be. Amen.